Hey there, this is The Uncomfortable Truth, and this is the very comfortable Alan Weiss. Today, I want to talk about retaining and even increasing power, because I find that we tend to concede power, we cede power, we give it up. It happens very often to people who uh, are advancing in age, which I talk about in my book, Three Score and More, but actually, it's a phenomenon that uh, is active with people of all ages. They give up power. Now, if you think about it, here's a, uh, the power-control kind of relationship. <clears throat> we can believe that we are controlled, that the power is external, and that is, we have no control. And so we're talking about the IRS, we're talking about the weather, we're talking about things that we don't control, and that extends to our boss in the business and the way the bus is late when we're trying to get to work, and so forth and so on. Everything's out of our control, and that is a kind of Calvinistic fatalism, a predetermination. In other words, I'm not going to expand much effort, exert much effort here, because it's out of my control. Now, there are people who believe that all control is internal. It's not external. And we control it. We can master the universe. And this is what every motivational speaker tries to tell you. You're your own best friend. Be authentic. Stand up and be counted. You too can do this. It's what The Secret is all about. One of the worst books in history. But of course, that's untrue. We can't control the weather and we can't control the IRS. And then there are people who believe that power simply doesn't exist. There's no external power. There's no internal power. You simply go out there every day and it's a random walk. You crash into buildings, you fall off the curb. It doesn't matter. Nothing's in control. So that leaves us with one option, and that is the people who understand that there is external power and internal power, and they are reciprocal. That is, the world does things to us and we do things to the world. Winston Churchill said, we build our houses and then they build us. He was talking about parliament but his point obtains to my point as well. And that is, we schedule a picnic and it rains, but our plan B is to go indoors and cook inside. And so, we cannot prevent certain things from happening, but we can certainly deal with them on a contingency basis. This is the reciprocity of power. We don't give it up, we understand where it comes from, and we adjust. Now, there's another relationship here, I think, in terms of power, and that is, the fulfilling and the gratifying on the one hand, and the meaningful on the other. So, for example, if something's highly meaningful and highly fulfilling, highly gratifying, let's say, that's very fulfilling. So, if something's very meaningful to everyone, you know, medical research, and it's highly gratifying for me to do medical research, that's a very fulfilling career, very fulfilling profession. You might say the same about art or just about anything where you find those two relationships high. There's high meaning for people around us, and it's very gratifying for us to do it. On the other hand, if it's very gratifying for us to do it, but there's low meaning to people around us, it's just gratifying to you or to me, that's an addiction. It could be drugs, it could be video games, it could be angry birds, but it's an addiction. So we're very gratified in doing it but it's not uh, very meaningful. Now, we can endure that in our lives. Nothing wrong with watching football every Sunday, for example. If something is high in meaning, but it's not gratifying, then it's laborious. Then it's a job. Then it's work. Then it's all those people in those prisons you see in New York and Chicago and San Francisco and Dallas and Atlanta in these big, tall buildings schlepping to work every day in the heat, in the cold, doesn't matter. 
squeezed in like sardines. And if there's neither meaning nor is it gratifying, then that's just apathy and you're wandering around. So my point to you is that power is a question of recognizing both its internal and external uh, context, configurations, and it's a matter of doing things, for the most part, that are both meaningful to others and gratifying to ourselves. We have to give ourselves permission to be like this. And so I've created the permission gauge. Some of you have seen it. But there are basically four places on the gauge. On the extreme left is, I must be granted permission, otherwise I will not take it. If you do not grant me permission, I will not take it. The next is, I will request permission. I'll ask formally. The third is vacillation. Well, maybe I should just seize the day, or maybe I should see if somebody else does it. And then finally, the fourth position is claimed permission. I'm simply taking permission. I'm seizing permission. A lot of you have been in classrooms. A lot of you have taught in classrooms, workshops, seminars, and whatever. And what you've observed is some people raise their hand, even among adults in sophisticated environments, and some people just shout out. Some people have a question, they ask it. Other people raise their hands. You'll find that the people who raise their hands often don't get as many questions in because they aren't seen or they aren't recognized or attention is turned to the person who spoke up. I'll give you a more interesting example, in my opinion. I just flew back as I'm recording this from South Africa on safari. And uh, in first class, of course, there are usually two restrooms and they're either in the, the front of the cabin or the rear of the cabin in first class. And you take off and the seatbelt sign, of course, is on. But once you level off, sometimes the seatbelt sign stays on. I think some pilots are just malicious and sadistic. I think others forget. And I think others are so damn cautious. If there's a, a bit of a breeze 40 miles ahead, they leave the seatbelt sign on. But in any case, they leave it on and you've seen this happen. Now, you should have gone to the uh, bathroom, the men's room or the ladies' room, or the neutral gender, uh, not counting any kind of preference room, uh, before you took off. But you didn't. You were late, you were rushing to the gate, or you forgot, or you were busy chatting, or whatever. You get on the plane and you realize you're somewhat uncomfortable. Man or woman doesn't matter. And you figure, well, it's okay. When the seatbelt sign's turned off, I'll just get up there and I'll take care of things. However, the seatbelt sign is not turned off. Now, going back to my permission gauge. Some people will sit there in excruciating pain and perhaps ruin their kidneys, but they ain't getting up. Other people will wave down a stewardess, oops, excuse me, a flight attendant, and they will say, is it okay if I go to the lavatory? And some of those attendants will say, sure, just be careful. And some will say, no, wait for the sign. In that case, you've been denied permission and you will not get up again. And you too will be in excruciating pain. In the third position on my permission gauge, people vacillate back and forth. Should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And some may eventually get up when it gets too painful and others will sit there and continue to vacillate. But in my fourth position, someone just gets up and goes to the restroom. Seatbelt sign is on, flight attendants are in their jump seats, gets up, goes to the restroom, can't wait any longer. Once that person does that, and you've seen it, everyone else starts to go. Everyone else follows, because they've been granted implicit and tacit permission by the person who got up and did it. And so, another element of power is seizing permission, carpe diem. In organizations, I've noticed generally four kinds of power, and I don't think they'll surprise you. One is hierarchical. And so, like the military, your rank determines the day. A general commands a colonel. A colonel gives orders to a major, a captain listens to the major, and so forth and so on. 
And you'll find sometimes that in the services, two people of equal rank will ask each other, well, when were you commissioned? When did you get your commission? And the one with the older commission, that is, even if it's two days before the other, holds rank. And in organizations, you have titles. Executive Vice President, Senior Vice President, Senior Executive Vice President, Executive Senior Executive Vice President, and so on and so forth. So the business card determines power. In some organizations, it's the ability to reward and punish. Now, that might, you think, be attached to hierarchical position, but it isn't always. Some people can make your life miserable, period. Some peers can make your life miserable. Or enhance your day by being cooperative. So the power to reward and punish, either formally or informally, is certainly a part of this. And then thirdly, you have the power of expertise. And you can exert power over others because you know what you're talking about and people need you. You're an actuary. You're a, an engineer. You're a chemist. You're an attorney. People need your expertise. But finally, there's what's called referential power. Some might consider this charismatic, but referential power means people follow you because they believe in you. Your power comes from the fact that you've created trust and people believe in you and they believe that their best interests are served by your best interests and your best interest is in serving their best interest. So that's how power accrues in an organization and that's how power is dealt with and determined and uh, defined by people themselves. But influence, power is lost when there's deception. When you find out you've been lied to and right now, boy, Elon Musk is doing this Power is lost. Power is lost when there's consistent failure. Everybody fails. If you're not failing, you're not trying. But when all you do is fail, you lose power. Power is lost when there's poor communication. When things aren't explained well. I was in the back of a room once when a senior vice president was addressing the uh, headquarters staff after a very, very good year and announcing the bonuses. And he said, it's been, um, it's been a good, good year. And uh, I'm happy to uh, report that the bonus pool is, is full and the distributions uh, will be uh, at, at maximum uh, levels. Somebody next to me said to me, is he firing us? So communication has to be effective to enjoy and sustain power. And then finally, you lose power when you're risk averse. I don't mean when you're prudent. I mean when you're absolutely risk averse. And people in organizations who tend to be extraordinarily risk-averse, like attorneys, will lose their power. People won't listen to them because despite their expertise, it's known that they only take one path and it's always the path that's safest. And that's not the way organizations get ahead. Now, let me say one thing about that. In many organizations, it's the risk-averse who become partners, CEO, and so forth. They stay off the radar screen. They are conservative. They don't get into trouble. They've never had an obvious failure and so forth and so on. But those aren't good organizations. And so you'll see people who keep their heads down, who do thrive, at least organizationally, but not in a great organization. So putting power to work for control, to control your environment, uh, I use this kind of uh, progression or this kind of formula. I think it comprises wisdom plus confidence, plus articulation, plus volume. And so you have to be wise. That is, you have to take knowledge and anticipate how it can be used. That's my definition of wisdom and use it appropriately. You have to have confidence in your decision to use that wisdom. 
You have to articulate it well so people can immediately understand what you have in mind and relate to it. And then finally, you have to do it with volume because enthusiasm is contagious. So that's my sequence to control. And the primary, the, the essence of this, the primary root is internal discipline. And that is we need to be committed to what we believe in and to what we want to achieve. We need to be focused on it with an intensity that isn't scattered or lost. We need to hold ourselves and others accountable to achieve certain growth goals and certain progress. And then finally, we need an orderliness so that the progression is clear, things are in place, and if something needs to be fixed, we can do it easily and we have the resilience. Brute force gets compliance but not commitment. And so that's why simply exerting the ability to reward and punish is insufficient and woefully insufficient in terms of true power. You have to walk the talk and talk the walk. And by that I mean you have to behave in a way consistent with what you're talking about, but you have to tell people also about what you mean and how they should act and the victories you've had and why the failures have been lessons to be learned. Walk the talk, talk the walk. Control is somewhat limited at times, but it's highly effective when you can seize it and maintain it and increase it. And remember this about control, the oxygen mask principle. You can't help others unless you're helping yourself. So you have to help yourself first to effectively and efficiently help others. And consequently, there's no crime, no immorality, no unethical nature to seizing control. Think about it the next time you're sitting there and really have to visit the restroom. That's the uncomfortable truth. <laughs>